what we do every week is we read a question and answer from the New City Catechism. 28 weeks, because today we're on question 29. Uh, so, well, it is 29. Uh, numbers got off. So, question is, I will read it, and then I will say answer, and you guys read the answer back with me, okay? So, question 28, 29. How can we be saved? Answer, only by faith in Jesus Christ and in his substitutionary atoning death on the cross. So even though we are guilty of having disobeyed God and are still inclined to all evil, nevertheless, God, without any merit of our own, but only by pure grace, imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Christ when we repent and believe in him. That's a lot. Um, now, I can't speak for anybody else but myself. Um, when I was young, I was taught that Jesus came to die for my sins. And so every day, every night, I would go to bed, and I would say, Lord, forgive me of my sins, wondering if I had to name them all one by one or if it was a blanket, Lord, forgive me of my sins, would work. Um, I thought that I had to go and produce a righteousness of my own. And every day I reset. Like Jesus got me back to zero. Does that, does that make sense? Have you ever felt that way? That Jesus gets you to zero and then you have to go above because you can't be neutral and dwell in God's presence. Like God does not deal in neutrality. There are God lovers and there are God haters. And so we cannot be God lovers of our own merit. For the, by the works of the law, no one will be made righteous. We cannot work ourselves into God's favor, into God's good graces. So what had to happen? The God-man had to come and had to fulfill the righteousness for us. And so it is that righteousness, Christ's righteousness, that is then imputed to us. So we stand in Christ both forgiven and righteous, all because of God's grace. And so that is what I want to, to impart to you today is that you're not accepted by God because of what you've done. You're not, you don't stand righteous before God because of your works. You stand righteous before God because of the works of Jesus Christ and only Him. And so now we're going to pray, and we're going to pray that God would give us a better understanding of what that means so that we would be able to rest in God, that we would be able to rest in Christ's sacrifice, but not only in His sacrifice, in His righteousness. That though we fail every day, we can rest in Christ, that he did not fail, and that we stand righteous in Christ. Because it is only in Christ that we have any standing with God. Everything else we deserve from God is judgment. So bow your heads, please. Father, how great the gospel is when we understand that we do not only get forgiveness of sins, Lord, but we get a righteousness that we could never produce. Ah, Lord, it is good and it is kind of you to give us that, Lord. You saw us as people who deserve judgment and you look on us with grace. You look on us with love. Lord, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Lord, so often do we, do we feel that we can produce a righteousness, Lord, that we can do good enough to get in your good graces, Lord. And that leads us into one of two errors. Lord, either we fall into pride that we can fulfill the law, 
or we fall into despair that we will never be able to muster up. Lord, in both cases, we don't need you. We feel that we don't need you when we can do it ourselves, or we feel that we are too far gone for you to reach us. Lord, but as the song that we sing from time to time says, you promised that you would come to us and you showed us on the cross. Lord, that you have lived 33 years on the earth, perfectly obeying the law for my sake. Lord, that you died for my sins. Lord, that, that is the gospel. It is not that you died for my sins and everything else is up to me. It is not that faith plus works equals righteousness. Lord, it is faith equals righteousness. Faith is the conduit through which the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. Lord, that is beyond our, our hope of understanding unless you awaken us by the Holy Spirit. Ah, we pray that you would continue to awaken us, Lord. We pray that you would awaken this, this nation, Lord, this city, this, uh, this town, this county, everything, every um, civic realm, Lord, that you would open their eyes to see the glory of the gospel, which is that Jesus Christ died as a sacrifice, but lived as a righteousness, and that both are imputed to us because we are in Christ, in Christ alone. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for just this Sunday and this gathering of believers who love you and love one another, Lord, that we would be a family united in Christ. Lord, pray that Daniel comes, that you would be with him and open our ears to hear. Uh, Lord, just for all those who are hurting now, Lord, that life is so uncertain. Uh, Lord, so many come to mind, Lord. We pray that you would continue to be with each and every one of them, Lord, that you would Father, that you would show yourself as trustworthy to these who are hurting, Lord, because pain and sorrow tends to, to try, like, it tends to try to push us away, Lord. It tries to separate us from you, Lord, but we pray that you would continue to draw us to you. Lord, we thank you so much for your love and for your grace and for your mercy. Uh, Father, be with us this afternoon as we go. Uh, help us to love one another well that we would love Jesus the way that you love Jesus, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading for today will come from Nahum, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Nahum, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. This is the word, the word of our Lord. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. 
and the mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows that those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. All right, thanks, Clay. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we're continuing our summer study of the Minor Prophets, 12 Minor Prophets, and today we are in Nahum. So as we open God's Word this morning, I want you to think back on all the sermons and Bible studies that you've heard from the book of Nahum. Are there any? Because I racked my brain and I couldn't think of any. Um, and while I don't have any hard data to support this, uh, Nahum may be one of the least preached books in the Bible. And you may think, well, why is that? And then you start reading. This is chapter 2, verse 10. Desolation, decimation, devastation, hearts melt, knees tremble, insides churn, every face grows pale. Okay, well, maybe chapter 3. Heaps of slain, mounds of corpses, dead bodies without end. Let's put that on a coffee mug. All right, like Nahum is not lifeway friendly. We're not going to see this stuff around the store. And the reason you may not have this shelf in your mind labeled Nahum is because we have not spent a lot of time contemplating the jealous vengeance of God. And yet, that's the very thing that our text is concerned with this morning. The prophet Nahum wastes no time in getting to the heart of the issue. It's God's displeasure. Nahum's message is directed towards the Assyrian Empire, with its capital city of Nineveh being addressed directly. This is one of the few prophetic books that is directed to a neighboring nation and not directly to the people of God. And Nineveh deserves judgment for its crimes against the people of God and surrounding nations. About a hundred years before Nahum was written, Assyria completely destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, scattering ten of the twelve original tribes throughout their empire, never to fully return. While the message is addressed to Nineveh, it is also a message meant to comfort God's people in the southern kingdom of Judah. We can look at the events in Nahum's prophecy and narrow down this message from the latter years of King Manasseh into the reign of King Josiah. And this is a pivotal time for the people of Judah. Their future as a nation is uncertain. And as this age of empires expands all around them, complete destruction seems inevitable for this tiny little nation. And what hope do they really have? Our perspective on biblical history helps us to see that God is sovereign over the affairs of nations, just as he is sovereign over the affairs of people. 
And when it comes to the actions of evil nations and evil rulers, God is a jealous and vengeful warrior for his people. But when it comes to his covenant people, he brings refuge and peace. And that's what the text wants us to see this morning. So let's talk about God's jealous character, verses 1 through 3. First, Nahum stresses that God is jealous. I would wager the jealousy of God might not be the first attribute of God that comes to your mind. We love to talk about God's patience, kindness, grace, and love. But God is a jealous God. He demands the exclusive loyalty of his people. How quickly we forget even a full reading of the second commandment. It says, You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or earth beneath or in the water under the earth, and you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God." And when describing his name to Moses in Exodus 34, the Lord says, You are never to bow down to another God because Yahweh, being jealous by nature, is a jealous God. Now, to be clear, God is not jealous of his people showing attention to lesser things as we might think of jealousy. Rather, he is zealous or extremely protective for his people. Why? Because God's jealousy comes from his covenant loyalty. He has made a promise, and he has put his name and reputation on the line when it comes to these people. The relationship that God established with his people was based on mutual faithfulness, and he cannot tolerate disloyalty. So God is jealous his people violate the covenant loyalty to him, and he's also jealous if others attack his covenant people. The Lord is zealous to protect and defend the honor of his name and the honor of his people. And we understand this. I mean, you can say a lot of things about me, you can threaten me, but you threaten my family, start talking about about them, like, I don't know. If you, if you come at me, like, I will do everything I can in my physical strength and the weapons that I have acquired, like, to make sure that they are protected, right? David also provides a human example of this in his dealing with Goliath. As David comes to the camp of Israel and hears what Goliath has been saying about God and his people, he says this, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the disgrace from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And David understands that Goliath's been saying some things that aren't true. He's been trying to defame God and his people. He understands the dishonor that's being shown towards God, and he makes sure Goliath does as well. He says in 1 Samuel 17, 45, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. So Goliath doesn't know who he's been taunting. David understood that the Lord's jealousy leads to his vengeance against those who violate his covenant people. Nahum verse 2 says that God is jealous 
and that he is an avenger. Notice the redundancy in verse 2. The word vengeance is used three times in one verse. Repetition in Hebrew often serves as an exclamation point. God is not pleased with the Assyrians' past conquest of Israel, nor of their current treatment of Judah. And God is a God of justice. He will not let evil deeds go unpunished. We will hold the Assyrians, he will hold the Assyrians accountable for all the evil that they have done. And yet it says in verse 2 that he keeps this wrath. He sustains his rage. And then in verse 3 it says that Yahweh is slow to anger. He's jealous, he's vengeful, yes, but God is also patient. We saw this last week in the book of Jonah. Do you remember where Jonah was sent to preach? Some 100 years earlier, Jonah was sent to the great city of Nineveh to call out their evil and announce their destruction. What did the Assyrians do then? Everyone from the king to the cows postured themselves in repentance. God did not judge the city then, but that does not mean that he's going to ignore the sins of later generations. Far from it. The past blessing is never a promise of present peace. The people of each generation must seek and serve God for themselves. God is still slow to anger. He often allows people to live a long time before he brings judgment to them for their sins. Or their sins may seem to go unnoticed and without consequence. The Apostle Peter wants us to know that this is not because God is blind towards us. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he says this, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God is not blind. He is looking for belief. He's looking for repentance. And we must not mistake his patience for weakness because God is not weak. Look at what Nahum says about God's powerful wrath. Verses 3 through 6. God is jealous, vengeful, patient. In verse 3, God is powerful. He is in a position to execute any threat, no matter how unlikely or how difficult If anyone doubts that the Lord is great and awesome in power, the prophet poetically describes God's power in verses 3 through 6. Here is a divine warrior going out to destroy his enemies and protect his people with some of the most vivid illustrations of the cosmic power of God. The weather, the waters, even the earth obeys him. Verse 5, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. This is God's jealous vengeance revealed to the world. Let's not forget, Nahum is not saying that God is capricious. He does not have any unreasonable changes of mind or character. God is not malicious. He is not spiteful towards people nor is he vicious. He's not just cruel for the sake of being cruel. God alone is holy and pure, and he works all things in accordance with his unchanging nature. 
as it's recorded in Genesis 18.25, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? This display of God's powerful wrath is about protecting his name and his promise people. So far, we've seen God's jealous character and his powerful wrath towards Nineveh, but now we see God's powerful protection of his people in verse 7. Charles Spurgeon said, Have you read this chapter through? It's a terrible one. It's like the rushing of a mighty river when it's nearing a cataract. It boils and seethes and flows with overwhelming force, bearing everything before it. Yet right in the middle of the surging flood stands out like a green island, this most cheering, comforting, and delightful text. Read verse 7 with me again. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The message of divine judgment on Assyria was bad news for Nineveh, but it was good news for Judah. They had lived through the fear and oppression of this evil nation for years, but now God was going to deal with Assyria, and he was going to redeem his people. God is not evil. God is good. He has not forgotten his people. He never forgets his people. The good news for Judah is that in his goodness, he is a stronghold for them in times of trouble. Psalm 9.9 says that the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. God is faithful to take care of his people in every crisis situation. God's people can run to him. He, he wants us to run to him. He's our stronghold. Whenever we find ourselves surrounded by difficulty and distress, we must turn to the Lord and trust his promises. Listen to what Jesus said about his people in John 10, 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Eternal life with God, that is ultimate refuge. Locked into God's hands, safe and secure, never to slip. Christian, what can this short life throw at us when forever is secure? When eternal life with God is your ultimate refuge, absolutely nothing. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress pictures this beautifully. Christian and hopeful have left God's pathway to go their own way. At first, this seemed to be a better way than God's, but then they became lulled into a false sense of security. As a result, they were locked up in the dungeon of Doubting Castle, by the giant despair. And John Bunyan brilliantly shows how doubt and despair often go hand in hand when God's promises are forgotten. He says this, Eventually, Christian remembers what he should have never forgotten. What a fool, what a fool I am to lie here in this stinking dungeon when I might walk free on the highway to glory. I have a, I have a key close to my heart called promise, which I'm sure will open any door in Doubting Castle. So it was when he applied the key, they were free, and the fearful giant despair could not restrain them from their journey. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8.18, 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If we who call ourselves God promise people rest in Christ alone for protection, then we can weather all the cares of life. This promise of refuge in Nahum is meant to bring hope to God's covenant people. But there's another message of hope as well. Nahum also says that the enemy of God's people will be utterly destroyed. Look at verse 8, the enemy of God's covenant. Look at how complete his downfall will be. The enemy's plans will be thwarted. 9 through 11. This message comes at some point during the reign of the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal. He was not only a scholarly man, but a ruthless leader of the army and an unforgiving enemy to many nations. Nahum uses a rhetorical question in verse 9 to point out how vulnerable Ashurbanipal would be in confronting God. What do you plot against Yahweh? This prophetic accusation of plotting against the Lord is powerful. Whatever imperial ambitions the Assyrians had for Judah, they were actually plotting against God, not merely against his people. At this point in Assyria's history, it would not have seemed possible, given the size and military might of their empire, that its capital would fall anytime soon. Ashurbanipal would have done well to remember what happened to King Sennacherib in Isaiah 37, 33. This is what happened in this story. Thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. Just picture Gandalf, you shall not pass, right? Like, For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Do you hear that? Why? Why is he going to do this? It's because of his name and because of his covenant. And then what happens? The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. Humiliation also came to Ashurbanipal. In 612 BC, the Assyrian Empire was destroyed by the Medes and the Babylonians, never to rise again, quickly replaced. The enemy's plans will be thwarted, and the enemy's captives will be freed. Look at verses 12 and 13. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and burst your bonds apart. God is reassuring his people that even in their painful discipline for their sins, he hears their cries. The Assyrian oppression has got, not gone on unnoticed by God. The promise of an end to the Assyrian affliction of God's people did not mean that they would never again be punished for their disobedience. In fact, just a few years after Nahum's prophecy, the Babylonians would come and sack the city of Jerusalem and begin the exile 
of Judah. But Nahum, just like his contemporary, Jeremiah, they were prophesying around the same time, preached a message of liberation and forever freedom. Even when the future looked grim, God's enemy could never hold God's people forever because God had made promises to Abraham and he had made promises to David. There was no way that they would remain in bondage forever. The enemy's plans are thwarted. The enemy's captives are freed. And the enemy's ruler will be forgotten. Look at verse 14. He will have no descendants. His name will be ended. The temple and the gods that he placed his faith in, they will be emptied. And he'll have no memorial or mausoleum. It says that Yahweh himself will bury him in a muddy grave. Let's make no mistake here. These promises of destruction may be directed towards Assyria and its ruler, but this is about the true enemy of God's people. The adversary, Satan, has opposed God and his people from the very beginning, and yet we know his plans will be thwarted. Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Those held captive by him will be freed. Colossians 1.13 He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And his rule will be forgotten. Revelation 20.10 The devil who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And with the fall of the enemy, we get verse 15. Eternal peace and celebration are coming. Nahum 1.15, Behold upon the mountains, look, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows for never again. That's our eternity language in the prophets. Never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Nahum invites a celebration of divine sovereignty and justice, affirming that God's retributive anger, it's good news. It's good news. Everything said to Nineveh is going to happen in the judgment on the devil and his associates. Great empires will fall. Injustice will be deconstructed. The gospel, through which enemies of God become his children, will be preached. God is at peace with his people, and now his people can be at peace with him. See, verse 15, it looks forward to a future proclamation of good news. When God is once again pleased with the worship of his people, when they have changed and obedient hearts, when sin has been dealt with forever. Let's look at one more text, and then I have a few points of application. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 67 with me. This New Testament text brings Nahum rushing into the story of Jesus. At the beginning of Luke, the angel came to tell Zechariah that he and Elizabeth were going to have a child in their old age. Zechariah had doubts 
and he lost his voice until he held baby John in his arms. Here we are in Luke chapter 1, verse 67. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So what is the Christian response to Nahum? Isn't our burden now very similar to Nahum and John the Baptist, this baby that Zechariah is talking about? Don't we now bear this same burden? Uh, the word oracle, that Nahum opens saying, like, this is an oracle, right? In Hebrew, oracle can actually mean proclamation or a burden. It's something that must be shared, a responsibility. This is what we have as well the burden of this message. Romans 10, 14 and 15 says this, How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So what do we preach? We preach the message of God's character. Now the world will not love God for his justice and his vengeance. And maybe we won't either, but that doesn't change who he is. This doesn't change who his character is and how he will be. Revelation 22, verse 12, he says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. We will bring God glory, whether through his grace or through his justice. And so we bear the burden of this message that God's character is one of jealous vengeance against his enemies. And yet, through Christ, those who were once enemies can be called children of God. So preach the message of God's character and preach the message of liberation. Message of liberation. A few weeks ago in equipping class, we looked at the theme of freedom that runs all through Scripture. We did it right after July 4th. It was very clever. Uh, I don't know who taught that, but whatever. Uh, Romans chapter 6 talks about it this way. Thanks be to God 
that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. There is freedom through God, through Jesus Christ, but that does not mean that we are now free to just go our own way and live our own life. It's, it's now a new responsibility that we are called into. God provides a path to freedom so that people might live in covenant relationship with him. Remember, faithful, loyal relationship with him. The world is longing for this path to freedom. They're longing for this purpose that we have as New Testament believers, understanding who we serve, and what he expects of us, and how he has freed us to be about this work. So we preach this message of freedom, and we also preach this message of eternal peace. Message of eternal peace. All of us in this room have been living in one of the most peaceful times in modern history. No, it often doesn't feel that way, but, but it is. Particularly in the U.S., we have never known the suffering of invasion from a foreign power. We have lived securely. But peace in this life is not promised to people. Utopia is nowhere in sight. Instead, Christians, we're able to live with a more realistic worldview where Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but don't be afraid, I've overcome the world. Christians, do your actions and do your words preach these messages? Maybe the clearest gospel message that we can offer is simply this from Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. I'll close with this. So now, kings, be wise, receive instruction, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord with reverential awe, and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. So yes, God is a God of vengeful justice, but he offers his people refuge and peace. Pray with me. Father, I pray that as we look at this text this morning, you are expanding our understanding of you, that you are humbling us, teaching us that we don't understand all of your ways and all of your motivations. But Father, I also pray that for all who feel distress and uh, feel the, uh, the weight of this world, um, even the oppression of individuals in their life, Father, I, I pray that they would feel your promise of refuge and peace, and that we would listen to the words of Jesus as he says that he gives us eternal life, Father. May we set our eyes on that goal and run the race accordingly. And Father, may we with our lives and our words preach this same message to those around us so that many more might come into your people and your family. 
Do this now for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.